We pray that you will give us the wisdom to administer them correctly. We just praise you and honor you for the gifts that you provide to us and the sustenance that you provide to your people in Christ's name. Join me, if you would, in your Bibles in Micah, chapter 5. And I have no idea how glad I am to be back with you. Uh, (laughs) Kelly told me, you wouldn't do so well in jail. (laughs) 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 It's true. My attitude is not always best when I'm locked away. So I'm really glad to be back in in your midst. Um, I began working on this message as part of our Advent series before... I got locked up, <laughs> and uh, so this is sort of an Advent message after the fact, and we'll get back into Proverbs after this, but uh, I also have noticed that um, this, this also applies well to the new year, I think, as, a, as, a, uh, as we go forward and understand God's providence and His covenant faithfulness. And so let's pray, and then we'll get into Micah 5. Father, we need you uh, for it's in submission to the divine will that we find our greatest happiness. And it's by communion with you, our triune God, that we are most blessed. It's by being gathered up as a family of God with Jesus, our elder brother, as our most faithful shepherd and strong king, that we find peace and security. We've come to hear this morning and to taste even a small portion of the bountiful gifts you've given us. So grant them to us, we ask, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And in the name of Jesus, your Son, Amen. And before we read the text, I want to give you a little bit of, of context because we don't spend a lot of time in Micah as a book. Uh, we should. I, I've never heard a series in Micah. I have a book of Calvin's sermons on, on Micah, and it is an important book, as all of them are. Micah is primarily, and probably why we don't get into it much, is a book of judgment. And it goes back and forth between judgment and promise. Judgment and promise, but it's heavy on judgment. But there are these wonderful nuggets of promise, and that's what we have here this morning in Micah 5. Is a promise, even though even within the promise there's some back and forth, and we'll see that as we get into it. And so... Uh, Brian Borgman, he said that Micah was the covenant prosecutor against the people. But he was also um, the messenger of the covenant of grace. I think that's a good description. And so as we uh, get into Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5a, um, keep those things in mind. that This is about judgment, but also the faithfulness of God and His covenant promises. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Micah 5, 
verse 1 through verse 5a. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she, is, she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. I don't know about you, I sometimes trip over verses like Psalm 73.3 For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Uh, My hopelessly systematic brain gets all tripped up by verses like these. Now, aren't we all arrogant and wicked? No one is righteous, no not one. So, uh, How does that all work? How are the wicked prospering in contrast to the righteous when there aren't really any righteous? I, I, I get myself all tangled up. And yet, undeniably, I do resonate with the sentiment. Why do the wicked prosper? And here's the question I often catch myself asking, and one really that runs parallel to the psalmist, is why doesn't God make His people absolutely dominate in every sphere of life? Like that, to me, that would be glory, glory to God if He made the Christian church and His people dominate. That's the, these are the questions I want to ask. Why are faithful churches small and not big? Why doesn't God just fix all of my weaknesses so that in my kingdom work, my family work, my my vocational work, I'd be great? Why why, why is He slow to prosper our endeavors when we think they'd be so beneficial? Or, Or why do our brothers and sisters around the world endure persecution, endure oppression? That doesn't seem like God's taking care of His people. Why doesn't the King of the universe just squash out all wickedness? That, to my brain, would be just the most glorifying thing to God. These kinds of frustrations actually get the better of me on a day-to-day, more than I'd like to admit, because I forget God likes to get get, get glory in ways we don't expect. I I think God would get the greatest glory by prospering all of my and your endeavors and by giving Christians immediate domination and dominion in the earth. But the truth is, He gets glory by grinding down my pride and replacing it with faith over time. If He gave me all that I wanted tomorrow, I would walk away with the Nebuchadnezzar complex. Look at all that I have built with my own hands. 
So how much more gracious is the chastisement of God which kills my pride and directs me to His glory and to His Son? And and that's the practical significance of the persistence of the covenant of God, His covenant promises, which are all fulfilled in Jesus. God does not ever order our world in the way we think He should. But whatever persistent trial we have, pain, um, perceived failure, chastisement, sin, pride, um, whatever we may be enduring, we know for absolute certain that it is the God-honoring will of our Sovereign King that it's happening. And that, more than anything else, is the mark of the faithful remnant of God throughout all of history is hope in the promises of God. That whatever happens, we will cling to the covenant faithfulness of God. And that's the, the situation here in Micah and, uh, that Judah found herself in. is As the people of God re- being under affliction rather than dominion. So we see here in verse 1, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Um, So that sounds hopeful initially, like muster your troops, take up arms, defend yourself. But notice it's almost a mocking tone. Take up, O daughter of troops, muster your troops from inside a a siege city. (laughs) Like that's not a lot of hope. It's kind of too late by that point. And it gets worse. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So now we know for sure this is not good. This is a prophecy of extreme humiliation. The enemies of God's people will slap their king in the face. Uh, verse, this verse seems to be most plainly fulfilled for Judah in the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar and the capture and humiliation of King Zedekiah. You remember they captured him and poked his eyes out. I mean, extreme humiliation. Um, but that may not be the exact reference. We don't know for sure. Micah lived in a day when Sennacherib from Assyria was dismantling um, Samaria and the northern kingdom and was, was attacking the outer cities of Judah and actually came to the gates of Jerusalem. Uh, but whatever the case, this is a distressing verse. This is a distressing announcement. It's not exactly what I would call the immediate and obvious prospering of God's people. As we saw when we went through the book of Habakkuk, this kind of news doesn't always inspire great confidence in the providence of God. Like verse 2 of chapter 1 of Habakkuk, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? We despair like that sometimes when we face adversity, when we face trials. But here's an inspiring thought. It inspires great confidence to me is that God thinks and works on so much larger and grander a scale than I do. Also, well, not losing track of any of the small details. He manages kingdoms and he manages little old me. So we take a step back and think about this. God has mobilized a great and feared empire against His own people for judgment and for chastisement. Now, why are they under judgment? Well, if you back up a couple or a chapter, a couple chapters, Micah three one through three, you get a sense of why these people are under God's judgment. Here, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, 
Is it not you, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Uh, clearly God is not pleased with their activities. I think they're not exactly practicing cannibalism here. This is imagery. They're actually taking advantage of the poor and insignificant. And it's unjust for the leaders of Israel how they're treating the lowly. But in God's big plans, He doesn't forget the small and oppressed. It's for justice on behalf of these small people that He brings in this great nation of Assyria and Babylon. And yet, and this is the sticker, and it's challenging, is that the faithful remnant inside the people who do not take advantage of people, the people who remember God's promises, who are, who are trying to keep His commandments, they're going to suffer the same corporate punishment with the rest of the nation. Now, how do we deal with that? How do we reconcile that? They too will, will starve in, in, under siege. They too will be taken into exile. So then what cause does, does Micah have for the people to remain confident in God's faithfulness in, in spite of this uh, devastating news? And it, and it is from this most desperate of oracles that we see one of the most plain announcements of, of Messiah to come in the Old Testament. It's God's prerogative to fabricate glory from trash, from the lowly. Uh, there's a woman here in the park that she's made a career out of making art out of chicken wire. It's amazing. She, she folds it and, and forms it into like animals or like a, a dress, like a woman. I mean, it's, and I think she has some pieces maybe in the hospital. Maybe you've seen them. But she forms them and then puts some kind of glitter on them and they're gorgeous out of chicken wire. Glory from trash. This is what God loves to do. This is how He gets glory. To take the unexpected and the overlooked and turn it into something beautiful. So verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So first of all, yes to... uh, Identify which Bethlehem. There's more than one. So if we say New York, we all know. If you say Newcastle, well, there's like ten in the United States. Which one? Newcastle, Colorado. So he has to, there's, he has to specify where this ruler is going to come from. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. I th- from what I understand, a thousand people would constitute a clan. So it's less than a, a thousand people at the time. But... You know, why not Jerusalem? Why not the great city of David? That that seems like the logical birthplace for a great ruler. Well, if you think about it, you mean Jerusalem like the city of Solomon that's become more and more debauched with each king? The city that, that but for a few reformers has been really a bulwark for injustice and idolatry? That's the city where the Messiah is going to come from? Not in God's estimation. Jerusalem will be cut down. And God will return to that that stump, that root, the, the stump of Jesse. To the city of David, to his birthplace, to Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. 
there is yet hope for God's covenant people. For this ruler is described as coming for me. He's a ruler for Yahweh. Unlike all these other kings, he is a ruler for Yahweh. And he will be ruler in Israel, meaning God will not utterly wipe out his people. They will not remain under siege and exile and dispersion forever. God's delight and greatness from small places is multiplied exponentially when we read the origin of this ruler. And really it's a thinly veiled, if veiled at all, reference to the incarnation and to the hypostatic union. It says that his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, from eternity essentially. This ruler who will come from Bethlehem, Ephrathah, already has an extensive history with Israel in, in 700 B.C. The very decrees of God, creation, other promises and prophecies of Him, His procession with them through the wilderness is the cloud and the fire and, and the water of the rock. His, his going forth is from ancient days. So this future sovereign is also the current sovereign. He's God. It's pretty clear. The Messiah will be a man and he will be God. What's the most common thing you hear people say when they're trying to comfort someone? It'll be okay. I do not like that. It will be okay, you know it will be okay. Like, it wasn't okay for the people who were under siege, dying of starvation, watching their friends and family die. That was not okay. What a hollow advice. You know, was it okay for the people in the Black Plague or, or people in the World Wars? Unspeakable things happen and it's not okay. And they even happen to God's people. I mean, quite literally, every, every one of these people who hear this announcement of promise in Micah will have been dead for 700 years before it's fulfilled. So why is this a promise of hope to the remnant who will never see its fulfillment in their lifetime? You see where I'm going with that? That's why I'm always trying to push and encourage and frame hope for you in spiritual realities, in eschatological realities, in covenant and, and corporate realities. Because it, be, it would be foolhardy for me to say, well, God will make it all better if you seek Him. He, he may, He may not. I don't know. We yet pray for blessing, yes, and He does bless those who are His. But we can say for certain that it is we, we have hope because God became a man to save us from our sin. We know that the weak and the lowly and the humble and the abused and the martyred people of God will receive the weightiest crowns of glory in the end. And that Jesus is a far greater treasure than any earthly comfort that we can have. And this is what we see in verse 3. It's not a promise that it will be alright, even for the remnant of Judah, but, but a promise of the future restoration of God's people. 
He's giving them a word to believe that one day God's promises to Eve, to Noah, to Adam, to Moses, to David, all of these things will still come to pass, even though it doesn't really look like it right now as they're going into exile. He's not going to renege on His covenant promises. The chastisement is temporary, and so they may yet hope in God, because His word is sure. So verse 3, Therefore He shall give them up. God's going to give up the people. Then there's this temporal word, until. He will give them up until. Until she who is in labor has given birth. Uh, who is she who is in labor? Uh, you know, It could be the virgin, like from Isaiah's prophecy. Uh, Isaiah and Micah were contemporary prophets. So I don't think Micah was referencing Isaiah because the people wouldn't get that. He could be talking about the specific woman fulfilled by Mary that gave birth to the Messiah. Um, But I think the place that the minds of the original audience would have gone was all these prophecies in the Old Testament about Zion being a woman in labor. And you see that also in Revelation. Uh, God's people will go into a time of exile and 400 years of silence, but their pain will give way to rejoicing. Uh, And just one example of this, and actually if you were just to read through Micah, this theme would be fresh on your mind as you get into chapter 5, because it's just a few verses before in uh, chapter 4, verse 10. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go into Babylon. So here's this picture of Zion, the people of God, being in labor, in pain, with the promise of a joyful uh, uh, relief of the, of the pain. So when she does give birth, birth, then the dispersed and scattered brothers of the ruler from Bethlehem will return to the people of Israel. When the birth pains of Israel have given way to joy, then that's when the remainder of the remnant of the people of God will be gathered back in. And not the ones that are Israel in name only, but the real ones. It says the brothers of the ruler. He will gather his brothers to himself. Now this verse is tricky. It's tricky to interpret. Uh, Verse 3. And the timing and the pronouns are difficult. Some see in this verse a future restoration of the nation of Israel, like not future to them, but yet future to us, which I see why they think that. Uh, Others believe that the end of the birth pains was simultaneous with the birth of the ruler prophesied here, of of Jesus, Um, which I would go with the latter for a few reasons. First of all, verse 3 is in the context of the arrival of the shepherd ruler. Um, So when the time of labor has ended, the ruler will begin to rule, we see. Also, uh, the birth narratives in the Gospel, I'd encourage you to read Matthew 2 and Luke 1 and 2 and just notice the connections between this text and those texts. It's, it's amazing. But in Matthew 2, the wise men come asking, where is he who was born king of the Jews? They're looking for this king of the Jews. And then Herod asks the scribes, where is the king to be born? They say, well, from this, this verse, Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Um, so, and then if we go over to Luke, we see all these themes and all these prayers and, and announcements about the Messiah. Um, they all revolve around salvation and peace of Israel um, and God's covenant promises. Zechariah, Mary, Elizabeth, Simeon, Anna, the angels, all of them are talking about these same themes that we have in our text this morning. 
just one example, Luke 2.38 tells us that Anna began to speak of Jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so we see that they're waiting for this Messiah to arrive. When he arrives, the pain, the labor pains will be gone. Then one more thing is that I just I see why people are it was easy for those people to to think they were waiting for a political restoration and triumph like against the Romans. I see why those people thought that. Even the disciples asked right before the ascension, Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They were still confused. But Jesus made it clear when speaking to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. He also came, he said, to bear witness to the truth and that it was actually the people who listened to his voice that were of the truth. So all that to say, my, my interpretive paraphrase of this verse, as it is difficult, is something like this. Uh, Therefore Yahweh will give up His people to chastisement until the time when God's people who are in the labor pains of God's wrath give birth to the Messiah. Uh, Now, interpretive and theological difficulty of this verse aside, I think the hope that's given here is that the labor pains of God's people will give way finally to joy. There will be restoration because of this ruler. That though they be given up for a time, brought away into exile, dispersed, distreated, dislodged, uh, subdued under all kinds of enemy kings, that's not permanent. There would one day come a ruler who would come and draw God's people back to himself, back into the assembly, to the united people of God. So this ruler is a uniting ruler, a a shepherd of his flock. He's also a man of the family. Uh, He gathers his subjects as a ruler. This is also amazing. He gathers his subjects as brothers. He says his brothers will come back. So the hope of this verse is that God will not let his covenant promises fall to the ground. I think that's the, the theme really of this text and this sermon, that God will not let His covenant promises fall to the ground. Whatever else we may be facing, when our vision of those promises goes dark, they're still good. God's promises will not fall to the ground. I love the way that Zechariah in Luke 1 rejoices over God's fulfillment of His covenant promises when He knows the Messiah is coming and His Son will be the forerunner. He says in Luke 1, 69-75, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and raised up, for us, raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. As He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. He sees fulfillment here of the... of the coming of the Messiah and of salvation for the people of God. 
So again, whatever darkness may be over your eyes, I know some of us are in pain, some of us are having family problems, my friend just died. (laughs) Whatever thing is in front of us, God will not let His covenant promises fall to the ground. He he will never stop being our God. We will not stop being His people. This life is fraught with tribulations, but they are light and momentary afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory prepared for the brothers of Christ. Verse 4, in the first line of verse 5, I intentionally skipped out on the last part of verse 5. It's challenging. <laughs> but I think that this is actually the proper break of the verse as well. Um, so four in the end of verse or beginning of verse five, uh, these kind of announce the results of what, what will it look like when this king, this ruler, arrives in Bethlehem. Uh, what what kind of ruler will he be? What will the people of God receive? What impact will it have? Um, so worldly kings rule for their own glory and in their own strength. They're after really the glory of their own name more than the glory of God, or the well-being of, of the people. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king by subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. That's a good king. Now, Jesus is not our chum. He's not our pal. He is a friend, but he's not our peer. He's our king. We are his subjects. He subdues us. He rules us. He is the ruler who comes forth from ancient days. But he's a shepherd king. He describes his own disposition toward his people as gentle and lowly. Like a good shepherd, he is anything but gentle toward his and our enemies. His strength, the shepherd, is not self-derived. Even though he's God, as a man, he's dependent on his Father. And in verse 4 we see, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. You remember what what God said in verse 2, that this ruler would come forth for me. He's what every son of David, the kings, should have been and weren't. He shepherds his flock in the name of Yahweh, depending on him and in his strength. He rules and governs with gentleness toward the sheep and strength to establish and defend his kingdom in the majesty of the name of Yahweh, he says. Again, I'm reminded of New Testament texts that just um, kind of shout out these old, the, the clarity of the Old Testament prophecies. John 10, 14-18 I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. 
For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You see the king with authority ruling in the majesty of the name of Yahweh there. Jesus came completely subdued to the Father's will, operating humbly, not on His own strength, but on the strength of the Lord. But that doesn't mean He Himself is not also mighty. Through His life, He became a great and renowned King in the earth. And we see that in in the second half of verse 4. And they, that is the people of God, shall dwell secure. Why? For now He shall be great to the ends of the earth. Our security, the the security of the people of God, is dependent on His greatness. See that connection there? Why shall we dwell secure? He shall be great to the end of the earth. Again, I am reminded of New Testament scriptures, Philippians 2, 7-11. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, he came in in humility and he left being renowned king of the world. And we see our own security too. Again in John 10, 28 and 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. We tend to think of our security being a function of our own abilities, our own capacities and capabilities. But here we see that it is the worldwide greatness of our Shepherd King that makes us secure. Recall the beginning and end of the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In the end, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That, that's glorious security. So as we labor to accomplish the mission of the church, we'll face adversity, enemies of the gospel, and all, all manner of difficulty along the way. But Jesus' greatness extends to the end of the earth, and in heaven and on earth. And so we have like the promise of, of God from Paul in Romans 8 that he, I am sure that either neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now verse 5 uh, begins by telling us that This peace is to be found not in a place or in a job or a a president. It is to be found in a person, in this person. And He shall be their peace, it says. The Messiah, Jesus, shall be their peace. It's not even He shall bring them peace, which He will. He shall be their peace. Here here again we find this truth that's so wonderful and obvious in Scripture and easy to say and difficult to live out. 
Jesus himself is our peace. That it is in communion with him and union with him and fellowship with him that we enjoy his peace. Because, you know, you follow Jesus, he, he actually tells us that this world, in this world you will have trouble. In this world they will hate you. In this world you will carry a cross. There will be conflict with the world. And yet, the angel sang out at his birth, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's peace with God that we're after. I think we're all longing for peace, uh, for security, for someone to rule us well, to be gentle with us, and to crush our enemies. Someone who will unite and gather us to himself and to each other. And that's really what we all want in a ruler. You notice the contrast between the beginning of this section and the end here. Verse 1, there there is no peace, there is no security, they're under siege. The ruler who's supposed to take care of them uh, and who is supposed to guard them and represent God to them and His authority and to faithfully shepherd them under the name of Yahweh, that ruler will be slapped in the face by the enemy. That's not peace and security. God is chastising His people. His face will not shine on them for a season. But no one can question Him. He will not let His covenant promises fall to the ground. He will raise up a strong and mighty King who is both gentle and strong. His reign will never end and He will bring security and peace to His people that will never end. So whatever challenges face us in 2021 or over the next decade or century, remember, God's covenant mercy never fails. Enjoy that peace, that security and unity of being subjects of a good shepherd. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing uh, 196, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus.